Hello, I'm Daniel. This is my podcast, Sharpening the Mind. I am a meditation teacher and also a labor activist in Kansas City, Missouri. I teach classes in meditation and Buddhism at the Rime Buddhist Center, as well as a few other places. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Hello, everyone. I am joined by my friend Katerina Elaine today, and we are going to talk about some different things. But first, I want to talk about how she ended up coming onto the podcast. So there's a little background for you. Um, she reached out to me and asked me to go give a talk at Aquarius, which is a metaphysical store and event space in Kansas City. And it's been around for a very long time. And 30 years, over 30, 30 years. Over 30 years it's been around. I remember hearing about it back when I was in high school. So I know it's been around a long time. And um, I go places where I'm invited. So of course I did jump at the chance to go there and give a talk. And it was really, a lot of people came and it was really well received. And that's kind of what she does. She works in this store, and I'll, I will ask her to talk about that. But ultimately, she found out I do a podcast and just asked me if she could come be on it. And I nobody's ever asked me, hey, can I be on your podcast before? So I said yes. And I do want to just start off by saying I have noticed, in general, the pagan community seems to really support my meditation teaching, my Buddhist work, because... I gave a talk at the Heartland Pagan Festival once, and that was a big deal for me. It was the biggest, at the time, it was the biggest crowd I've ever talked to. I've talked to bigger crowds now, but it was a really big crowd, and it was a big deal. And that, again, the pagan community has been really helpful to me. And also, my meditation events, people from the pagan community come to those. And I think that's great because you don't have to take on a new identity to come meditate with me. You could be a pagan or an atheist or a Christian or whatever. And that's all fine. And I want people to not think they have to take on a new identity. So um, I just wanted to say, just to start off, that I feel really supported by the pagan community. And I like that a lot. And part of that is because um, my best friend as a child is named Daniel Symes. And Daniel Symes is really involved in the pagan community. And I know a lot of his friends. And that's part of that, I think. But also, I think pagans are really nice and really um, (laughs) supportive of different ideas and not judgmental, I think. And that's not always true of Buddhists. So um, I'm glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you. I have personally been very much enjoying this podcast myself. Um, I had actually been losing sight of my own meditation practice for a while. And just listening to your podcast helped me get back into it. And that is one of the reasons I thought I might like to go be on this podcast and talk with you myself and share it a bit more uh, because it was helpful to me. You've been very authentic with everything that you shared and it's been awesome. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) Okay. I should know better than to compliment a Buddhist. They always (laughs) go red. Um. (laughs) So, um... I want to learn and I want my audience to learn how you got to where you are. So I'm going to make a big guess and say probably you had a childhood where you felt out of place all the time and uncomfortable and you didn't know who you wanted to be. And then as you got older, you found 
what you wanted to do. Would that be pretty close? That is yeah. pretty close. Yeah. Yes. I was always a unique, wild, creative type um, from a very, very conservative family living in, you know, small towns. Um, so yes, very, very different. Um, and I got used to being different and I embraced being different early on. And then I was able to move to the Kansas City area and start meeting more different people and, and fit in with communities. It's been excellent. We're all individuals continuing to be unique, but working together and it's all just beautiful. And so where did all this, where did your spiritual practice start for you? Goodness. Um, I was raised in the church, so I could actually say that my spiritual practice began in Christianity. Um, I'm not against Christianity. I've never really rebelled against it. I was very devoted to my Christian studies and Bible studies, to my prayer, um, to the different youth group functions. But as I grew older, things in life got complicated for me. And that particular path didn't fit me anymore. Um, I sometimes say that there were things that Jesus wasn't really qualified to teach me. I needed a goddess. Um, and I learned how to be a strong and independent woman by working with the goddess. I grew out of Christianity. And then eventually after a couple years of just not really knowing what I wanted, not really doing anything. Um, I stumbled into Wicca and I've loved it ever, ever since. I began with, you know, Cunningham books and the like, uh, and with basic meditation right there at the beginning. It wasn't too different from the prayer I was used to, but it did feel different in, in some ways. And I picked up so much more when I got into meditation. Um, and then I just continued being devoted to my new path. Uh, and I've been doing all kinds of interesting things since. In the new store, I'm learning about all different religions and spiritual paths. It's a uh, Aquarius is a metaphysical store that just, you know, is all about spirituality. All religions and paths are accepted there. And all of the employees have their own unique kind of specialties. So very multicultural and, and wonderful, intriguing, learning something new every day. <laughs> so you identify as a witch, is that right? Somewhat. Okay. Um, I identify as a devotional, polytheistic, eclectic, traditional Wiccan. So lots of words. Um, devotional polytheistic, meaning that I work with deities and spirits as being separate beings for myself. Um, eclectic, meaning that I just draw inspiration from all different paths. Traditional in the sense that I really appreciate history and tradition, and Wicca is my religion. So witchcraft is a practice, very much like how meditation is a practice. Um, and Wicca is a religion, very much how you know, Buddhism is a religion. Um, so yes, I am a witch because I practice witchcraft, but I'm also a Wiccan because I follow the Wiccan religion. Okay. And there are Wic Wiccans that don't practice witchcraft. And there are witches that aren't Wiccan. Well, Is I've never right? met a Wiccan who doesn't practice witchcraft. 
I think finding a Buddhist that doesn't meditate, it would be kind of similar. <laughs> okay. Um, that would be hard to find, uh, though they're a unique bunch. So who knows? Um, could be anything. But you certainly can practice witchcraft um, and then identify as a witch and not be a Wiccan. Um, you don't have to have the religion, just like you don't have to be a Buddhist to meditate. Okay. And so I, I have learned just from talking to people that a lot of people that identify as pagan think gods are deities are metaphors and don't literally believe in them. And that's not you. You literally that's, believe in them. That is why I'm very specific about okay. it. I literally believe in them as being uh, consciousness that are, you know, separate from myself as much as anything is separate from myself. Um, I also kind of think that if you get to a certain point in a trance state, everything sort of becomes you all the same. It all becomes one. Um but I do believe in them as, as being separate and not just a part of my own psychology or something that I'm working with just in my head. Okay. That was, that was something that surprised me when I was <laughs> talking to pagans that many of them don't believe in literal gods and, and some of them even don't believe in magic at all. Mm -hmm. And so that really struck me as surprising. Yeah, it, there are not a lot of rules for being mm -hmm. pagan. Uh, pagan is kind of a catch-all for a lot of different spiritualities. And uh, even Wicca, even though it's a defined religion, it's not a religion with a lot of strict dogma or rules or um, anything like that. So you could meet a hundred Wiccans and none of them believe the exact same thing. And none of them probably practice in the exact same way. Um, there's a freedom to it that is really, really wonderful for those of us who are creative and want to sort of make our own religious ways and for people who are willing to be responsible for that, um, willing to really think through what they believe and build it themselves. Okay. So I know you run a yearly event and we're going to talk about that. But first I wanted to ask you, do you consider this yearly event that you run a community? Yes, there is a community that is a part of it and they are a part of it all year round. And um, they talk together on a Facebook group and they attend the regular um, classes that we have. We have some open classes throughout the year. So yeah, there's a community there. Um, a community of Temple Scarlet. I sometimes call them the Scarlet Humans. Okay, and what are you, are you called something? Teacher, leader? Event coordinator <laughs> um, <laughs> is what I tend to go with. Okay. Um, okay. Sometimes the founder, we've finished up our paperwork to become a nonprofit, so technically I guess I'm the founder of the Temple Scarlet organization um, and the founder of the annual Temple Scarlet Retreat. Um, but event coordinator suits me just fine. Um, I think that leadership and event coordination and teaching even are very separate skill sets. A lot of times people kind of end up doing all of them, but I want to make it clear, you know, which I'm okay. doing. Okay. I have a very specific skill set for organizing events. I'm not bad at teaching either. However, <laughs> not my main thing. And one more thing before we get into what it is, and that is 
if I understand correctly, you were inspired to create this and you created it out of nothing. Somewhat. Uh, there was inspiration. There was a calling. There was a need for it in the community. I could see that it would be well received, that people wanted it. And I was working with the gods as I always have been. So it's hard to say out of nothing because I feel like I was very supported and inspired. Um, but I did kind of just with willpower walk up to Gaia and say, hey, I'm going to do a festival. Here's my money. Um, <laughs> and I think it, it did throw people off a bit at first. Um, it did come a little out of nowhere, possibly. Uh, not out of nothing, but by myself, yes. <laughs> and did you experience pushback, like people that didn't believe in you? Yeah, certainly. Um, there were a lot of people who had attended a, a past festival out there that was a similar festival. Um, a festival which I did attend once, and it was really inspiring and wonderful. Um, it hadn't been going on. It isn't going on now. I don't think they may be putting it on somewhere else, but I'm not certain. Um, and there were a lot of people who kind of pushed back at me. Um, I think they felt that I was trying to take over maybe that kind of a festival. Um, but I was really trying to do my own thing. It's a very similar thing, but it is, is different than the festivals of the past. So I think it was mostly confusion, um, but there was there was pushback of, of people okay. not liking what I was doing. Um, you know, changes okay. that way. Okay, so <laughs> I want to tell the listeners what Camp Gaia is, but I think it's better if you tell the listeners what Camp Gaia is. So if you would, go ahead. Well, I'm going to begin by saying I can't exactly speak on Gaia's behalf and define it, but I'll, I'll give my opinion. Um, it, Camp Gaia is a huge and beautiful campground that is spiritual and open to all sorts of pagan and spiritual paths um, and really just open to any alternative lifestyles and alternative people who are looking for acceptance. Um it's the only kind of pagan-centric land in all of Kansas, as far as I know. It is one of the only spaces that someone like myself might be able to even claim is a temple. There are stone circles and um, altars and shrines built into the land that are beautiful. And you can't find that hardly anywhere else. Um, when your religion is focused around nature, you don't end up with a lot of churches you kind of just end up with the woods. Um, but this space has done a good job of having all of the necessities that a person might need for, you know, a big camp event, for a gathering event, a dining hall, a main hall, for if you do need to gather together in a building, but also having the huge campground and all of the beautiful nature surrounding you. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Okay, so... I liked it when I went there. I think it's a very nice place. But they have different festivals in the Heartland Pagan Festivals, mm -hmm. a very big festival that I went to and I led meditation there two times. And um, it was a really great, it's a really great place. And I really liked that. But they have other festivals too, of which yours is one. And there are some other ones. And really, 
you just have to have an idea and have the money to rent the space. And then you go to them and they let you do it. They do um, take your idea before the board and there's a board of directors that talks it over and approves it or disapproves it. Um, it needs to be relevant, I think, to the community. Probably needs to be somewhat spiritual. But yeah, if you have the right idea and um, you need an alternative space that's going to host that and be accepting of that, then it's definitely worth talking to them about. Yeah. Okay, so um, we'll get into it now. <laughs> what is Temple Scarlet? Temple Scarlet is a organization creating sacred sexuality events in the Kansas City area. Um, our big event is the sacred sexuality retreat that we have at Gaia every year. That's the one you're talking of. Uh, it is a weekend long retreat that is packed with different classes, rituals in the evening and activities and things of that sort. It's a real like transformative experience. It's the kind of thing that people really change a lot from if they allow themselves to, um, very intense and, and very wonderful. The organization also puts on some classes throughout the year. I think we'll probably have them ready January or February. Um, and they're often always open classes, um, just free of charge for the community to come and learn some sacred sexuality things um, in a nice public space. And always open, always a good introduction to what we are all about without having to commit to the retreat right out. So, so, um, because of the nature of this, I wonder if somebody listening kind of laughed a little when you said sexuality classes, Probably. So, but what we're talking about is things like consent workshop or, or polyamory workshop or, mm -hmm. or, uh, what are some other things? Um, so we have uh, classes about Tantra, ancient Tantra, and, and what that was about and how that was practiced. We've had classes about healthy masculinity. We've had classes about sexual orientation. Uh, consent and ethics is usually a big one that we focus on. It tends to be a place where ethics and spirituality and sexuality kind of meet and people learn and improve from those spaces. A lot of times we will talk to people about their spiritual paths. Um, I will find presenters and they will tell me about their religion or their spiritual path. And they will talk to me about, you know, what are the views of sexuality for a Taoist? What are the views of sexuality for someone who's been studying Tantra? Um, it's talking about sexuality which is something that we don't talk about a lot in our spiritual circles. Um, we try to divide the two far too often and try to ignore the sexuality and just talk about spiritual enlightenment and things of that nature. But every religion, every spiritual path, sexuality is a part of us as humans, so it tends to be a part of our beliefs as well. But have we defined them? Have we decided what we believe about sexuality or are we just avoiding it? So it's a, a place where we can talk about those things, spirituality and sexuality mixing together and being discussed and being accepted.
Okay. So sometimes we don't talk about sexuality very much in our culture, but I would think that pagans don't have those same challenges that the rest of us do most of the time. Oh, you would be wrong. <laughs> okay. um, <laughs> um, you would be wrong. Um, our entire culture in America was founded on Puritanism. And a lot of that bled forward into the generations. Um, it affects us more than we know if we don't take the time to sit down, look it over, make it conscious, um, and be aware of our sexual views and what we think about sexuality and how that mixes with our spiritual beliefs. If we don't become aware of it, it, it does affect even pagans. I think that those of us who began as Christians and had to sort of undo that conditioning and then became pagans, maybe have an easier time of it. We're accustomed to undoing the things we learned in Christianity and saying, yes, but do I believe that now? Because now I'm a pagan, so maybe that doesn't fit anymore with what I believe right now. Uh, but I think people who never got used to undoing previous beliefs, who just came into paganism, might not be aware how much that mainstream religion and the puritanism in our culture does affect their views of sexuality if they don't really become conscious of it. And I imagine that there are people listening to this right now who, you know, the first two or three times we said the word sexuality found themselves twitching and tensing up already because our culture has such a stigma against even talking about it. So, and then... There's the other side of that, because I think there's two sides of it. And the one side is, I'm afraid to talk about sexuality. But the other side is, I want to ask you, do people come to your festival thinking they're definitely going to get laid? Do you think so? Every once in a while. We do what we can to discourage that kind of thought. Um, we make it very apparent that the festival is all about growth and education and changing as a person and learning um, developing yourself. We don't cater to couples specifically. Um, and on the FAQs that we sometimes hand out at events, I do have a question that says, you know, will I find a hookup partner at Temple Scarlet? And the answer is basically, that's not the right reason for being there. Um, it's not a hookup retreat. It's not about finding sex. So if that's what you're looking for, you should go elsewhere. There are other places for that. Um, you might find a hookup at Temple Scarlet, but, you know, again, it's just not the right reason to go there at all. If that's why you go, you'll probably be disappointed. <sighs> if you're going for a transformative experience, if you're going to improve yourself, heal, figure out your own sexuality, then you're right on, and who knows, some really great things have happened. Okay, good answer. Um, how long has this been going on? Coming up in January will be only on year three. I had to pause. Um, yeah, only three years. It feels like longer for me for some reason, but I think I've been tapped into this idea for a long time. Um, it'll be year three. We had our second year last year, and it's 
doubled in attendance um, from one year to the next. I won't be surprised if it doubles in attendance on year three. I may have to put a cap on it soon. Uh, <laughs> um, is it a lot of work? Oh, yes. Goodness, yes. I am blessed to have a great team of people every year. There are excellent volunteers that pull together who are just as passionate about this as I am. And they help so much. Uh, they ran a lot of the show at last year's Temple Scarlet Retreat. But the work is is definitely extensive. And I am very committed to doing it. Uh, but it, yes, it's a lot of work to run the event and the organization. Hundreds of people come? Last year was um, 800, was about what we had. There may be more this year. We don't intend for it ever to be large enough for there to be hundreds, honestly. Okay. Um, I think it'll probably always be under 200. The nature of the retreat is intimate, and we want it to be able to be comfortably intimate and safe. We're very concerned about safety and about consent. We wouldn't be able to do that with hundreds of people. We wouldn't be able to have the same kind of experience. So we're aiming for a very quality, weekend-long, extensive experience. Uh, less people, but more intense. Okay. Less people is good sometimes. I've, I've found that when I'm leading meditation also. Less people is good sometimes because they're more comfortable asking questions or saying how they feel or whatever. So... Yeah, and we think that as well. So um, what is your favorite, gosh, what's your favorite outcome that you've had from what is something that has happened at this retreat that you're like, I'm really proud that that happened? I can tell you that. Um, this past year, we had an individual who came into the retreat. He hadn't been out to Gaia before. He was going through a lot, um, trying to kind of reintegrate himself into society after having been out of it for many years. Um, on the first day of the retreat, he was being very awkward, drinking a lot that night. And we had some people coming and talking to me and the leadership, sharing concerns, just saying they were concerned about this person. They weren't sure what to think if he was going to be safe. Um, and we listened to them and we wrote it down and we watched and we did everything we could to maintain the safety. And it was perfectly safe. Um, by day two, we had people coming up and saying, well, he seems all right. We think he's okay. And by day three, I watched the community begin actively offering this, actively offering this man help, actively reaching out to him, actively talking to him. So the fact that they changed from being uncertain and afraid of this new person who was awkward and over the course of two days were reaching out to him, um, giving him their phone number, asking if they could do anything to help him was beautiful. I loved watching the community do that. And I think that it is possible because we built a container that they felt safe in at our festival, that they knew we were addressing their concerns and washing out for them. And so they went ahead and they got to know him and they reached out to him and it was beautiful to watch. Okay, great. 
So it sounds like the right people are coming to the event, and that's good. So, um, and I'm going to ask this again at the end, just to make sure the listeners get it. Get it. But when is the festival? Not not this year, obviously, because it's November. When is the festival next year? July. Near the end of July, we won't have official dates until January. We have to work the dates out with Gaia year by year. It'll probably be the same weekend as in the past. It's in the in July at Gaia. Pretty hot, right? Surprisingly not. Um, every year we prepare for like heat stroke and things like that, thinking, oh, no, it'll be so hot. And we've always been lucky so far. Um, so we may continue to be lucky. Uh and weather patterns are changing as well. I don't know if July is as hot as it used to be, but we've been lucky, I can say that. Okay. <laughs> and then I have to ask, how much is the festival? The tickets are $60, and that's for the full weekend. Um, they're camping tickets. If you want to arrange to stay in a cabin, you have to do that separately. Get a hold of Gaia to arrange uh, and get a cabin there that weekend. There is also a $30 option for volunteers. So if you come in and you're willing to do six hours of work, which is often just sitting at the safety tent, um, maintaining the safety, being willing to call anybody who's needed um, if there's some kind of a problem. Okay, so I think 60 is really not that bad. So if my listeners are interested, I think they should go to what's your website? Currently, templescarlet.info. That has all our information from last year. It's mostly all still relevant. Um, we may be making changes later in the year, but we will let everyone know. We'll announce that. Um, it is important to us that anyone who needs to experience this retreat is able to do so. Um, so we do keep the prices as affordable as possible. Always open to donations, though. <laughs> okay, great. So. Do you feel really accomplished for having created this? Yes, at times. I have a habit of getting caught up in the next big thing. Uh, so I accomplish something and then I start looking forward to the next event I'm supposed to put on or the next trip that I'm going to take. I don't slow down to really feel how awesome everything has worked out enough. Um, but when I do take a moment to sit and think about it, yeah, it's gone incredibly well. Um, I've been fortunate. Everything has been very successful. We've managed not to go into debt with our expenses either year so far. We've managed to double our attendance. Um, it's gone wonderfully. And yeah, I'm, I'm proud of the work I've put into it and how it's turned out. So it, um, it seems like a big achievement to me, especially for someone who, um, I don't know how old you are, but I know you're quite a bit younger than me. So it really seems like a big accomplishment to me. And I'm not going to ask how old you are. <laughs> no worries. But... I'm, I'm quite young. <laughs> <laughs> so. I've always been ambitious, though. So. <laughs> okay. Well, that's good. So to change gears now, um, let's talk about meditation. I think a lot of the meditation that's in, in Wicca and in, in paganism in general probably comes from Buddhism and from Hinduism. Do you think that's true? Half. I would say half. Okay. Um, maybe not even half, 
but something close to that. Yeah, modern paganism takes inspiration from a lot of different sources for their practices. I do think that Zen meditation, um, Buddhist, and, and even Hindu and Eastern practices had an impact and inspired what we practice today. We also got a lot from shamanism, from um, just different shaman paths and the way that they would do their meditations. Um, it turned into versions of, of path working that's very different from Eastern style meditation. And then I think we picked up some things from psychology as well. Uh, I'm not an expert on meditation or its history, but that's what seems to have happened um, in my experience with reading all these different books and trying all these different meditations. So uh, the meditation I do is following the breath and then uh, just sitting and being aware of my experience. Meditations I don't do are things like visualization or following a mantra, things like that. What what kind of meditation speaks to you? Ooh, I try to use the right tool for the right problem. Um, it's far easier for me to do pathworking meditations, and that usually is like following a certain prompted. Um, scenario, like walking down a path in a forest. There are different things that are supposed to pop up. Um, it takes your mind into that meditation like a movie, and then your mind continues to generate different answers and things. I find that comes easily to me. Mindfulness, the act of meditating and just being fully present with what's going on around me, is a lot more difficult and lately, it's what I need. <laughs> um, so pathworking meditation comes easily to me. I really prefer that, but I need to be better at mindfulness. Okay. Yeah, mindfulness is what I do. Um, with So with pathworking meditation, does that mean somebody is talking to you? Somebody's telling you what to do? Either a person or a recording, they're telling you, like, you're walking through a forest this happens. Is that how that works? It can be, yes. Um, sometimes it's a, a guided meditation where someone does talk you through it. Sometimes it's a meditation out of a book that is written, um, and you essentially read it and just get lost in the scene like you would when you're getting lost in a very good book. Anyone who's a book nerd knows what I mean. Um, so it's similar to that. Um, but being guided through a certain kind of a, a movie-like scenario that um, usually digs into different psychology points um, involving doors is often common, and I believe that comes from psychology. Yeah, it's, it's about being guided through something. Um, can do it yourself, I suppose, but you'd have to write it all out yourself. It would, it would be a bit difficult, but not impossible. I don't... I've... Uh, never gotten into visualization mm. meditation and this, and this isn't exactly the same, but I think I'd run into the same thing, which is I don't really visualize things. So I can't, when people say, you know, picture a clear mirror, like I just, I, I don't do that. So, <laughs> but I think it probably does work for a lot of people. I am an incredibly visual person, so it, it makes a lot of sense that it comes pretty easily to me. I do art as well. So very visual. Um, yeah, that kind of journeying, path-working version of meditation is really great, and I really enjoy that. 
Okay. Um, what else should we talk about? <laughs> um, what is the hardest part of meditating for you? I think I've heard you answered this, but I'm curious. So the hardest part, <laughs> I don't want to do it. That's the hardest part. I really want to do anything else. So that one thing is, it's just hard to get to a position where we're doing it. And that is why that's really the motivation behind my meditation group. I started Monday nights because if I'm running it, I can't get out of it. I put myself in a trap because <laughs> it is, I don't want to meditate. I want to watch Netflix or sit on the couch or do anything else because it's just hard. We find when we sit down in meditation, I think it really tends to bring up a lot of things we don't want to think about and a lot of feelings, physical and emotional, that we don't want to have because we're taking that time to stop distracting ourselves for a minute and we really want to be distracted all the time. So it's a long answer, but just getting back to doing it because it is, the benefits are great, but it is boring. <laughs> it is boring if we don't look at it in the right way. And there are always excuses we can come up with to not do it. We are really good at coming up with excuses. And that's why I think people need a lot of support if they're doing a meditation practice. People need a lot of support and encouragement because it's just, it's so easy to not do it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the same with anything we know we should do for our, for our uh, self-improvement. It's hard to just go to the gym as well without encouragement, without a friend. It's hard to do that. And I think it's hard to eat a better diet too. Just anything that we know we should do can be really hard to do without a lot of, without some encouragement, maybe not a lot, but without some encouragement and some just reminders that what we're doing is important. I usually, I often like to compare meditation to flossing because flossing is something that I know I should do. And it takes very little time and very little energy. And the floss is right there in my bathroom and I don't do it. So, and I think a lot of people are that way. I love that comparison. I think it is an excellent example of what self-discipline means. It's doing those things that you know you need to do that you don't want to do. You don't want to floss, but you floss anyway. And Figuring out self-discipline and, and doing those things anyway is difficult, and we don't seem to be good at it as a culture, good at that self-discipline, but the better we get at it, it can have a really excellent impact on our lives and help us to be very successful when we're able to really have the self-discipline to follow through on things that are hard but that we should be doing really can improve our lives. It takes practice though. Yeah, I think, and I think a lot of people, they come to meditation and they do it a few times and they think, oh, this isn't doing anything for me and they quit. And that's because it's something we're training in and it's something mm. where it doesn't do anything right away. And again, it's really easy to come up with excuses not to do it. Is so, it accurate to say that meditation is a practice? Yes. Okay. Yes, it is. Because I'm not good at it. No, because 
it's, <laughs> it's something we're doing again and again and again, and we're hopefully having some improvement, not only in the process, but in our day-to-day life. Hopefully, we're learning how to be more mindful, more aware, more compassionate, and just to learn, really, to learn how to pay attention to the things that matter to us and to not be in a daydream all the time, because I think that's what we're like a lot of the time. We miss things because we are just not aware of the world around us. And these days, I think that we really feel like we have a right to be entertained all the time. We feel like we have a right to be entertained all the time. So because there are so many ways to avoid avoid boredom now. So we feel like yeah. we have a right to not be to be entertained all the time and be stimulated all the time. And I don't think that's a good thing. I also find that people who spent a few years of their lives in unfortunate and difficult situations um, slip into that spaced out, being up in our heads, daydreaming zone as a form of escapism, and then it, it becomes a habit very easily. So maybe you had a really horrible couple of years and you started to space out and try to just escape your reality a lot. Um, but once that becomes a habit, even when your life changes, even when things are going better, you might still be zoning out and not appreciating the good things that are now available to you. Uh, so that's something that I have had to be aware of in my life for sure. Yeah, I like that you use the word habit. We don't think about what our mind does as habits all the time, but a habit is what it is. And really with our med- meditation training, what we're doing is trying to get a habit of being fully present, of kind of putting down our shit and just being with what's happening and not letting ourselves have excuses and not letting ourselves carry baggage and all that stuff. We're trying to build a habit of being here because we've decided we, we believe that being here is better than being somewhere else because when we're somewhere else, we miss everything. There's a lot of wonderful things going on right here, right now. All the time. Always. (laughs) Okay, um, and then I neglected to ask this important question. Uh, Where did the name Temple Scarlet come from? Does Scarlet mean something, and if so, yes, what what does it mean? Yes, so the concept of a temple as an event name is pretty widespread. Um, There's different, like, uh, Nectar of the Goddess Temple is one of the sacred sexuality festivals in uh, California. Um, A temple is is basically saying we're, we're building a space that is sacred where the divine can be and where people can also be and we can have spiritual experiences here. Scarlet is an important color because it is the color in between red and orange. And red and orange in the chakra system are your root and your sacral chakra. They're your chakras of survival and security. And then your sacral chakra is your chakra of sexuality and creativity. And it's embracing both of those lower chakras and allowing us to explore that in a way that spiritual people often haven't. They tend to get very focused with that third eye, wanting to 
you know, find enlightenment, wanting to connect with their crown, with their higher self, which is wonderful and all well and good. But I absolutely believe that all of the chakras are important, that balance in one's life is important, and that addressing those other things, that primal nature is important. And scarlet is is that color, and all the symbolism that comes with that color is available in our events. Did that name come to you very easily, or did you think about what to call this for a long time? It came to me um, <laughs> sitting with a friend at Gaia out of nowhere. We were talking about the future, and honestly, it was a premonition. I sat there, and he talked about something in the future, and I said, well, I know one thing in the future, Temple Scarlet. And he said, what's that? And I said, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea um, yet. I found out. And when I started to feel the calling to create this event and this organization and make it more solidified, the name came back around to me and I went, that is exactly the name that I want. That is exactly it. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, I've found that the same, so the temple thing, I found the same thing is true in Buddhism. Sometimes there's a literal temple, but other times people call it a temple and they're really just renting a room somewhere. And it's the same. And the other term that people use is meditation center, which I, I like better than temple, but and that also sometimes it's an actual place, but sometimes you're just renting a space somewhere and that's mm -hmm. okay. That's yeah. okay. I think it, I think, I think the name helps and I think we shouldn't be shamed for using those kinds of names. I think that ultimately it's not about the place. It's about what's happening there and the people. So I think it can be a temple without literally being built out of stone or whatever. So um, I'll just talk very briefly about Buddhism and sexuality because I think it would be weird to not. I am interested <laughs> in hearing this. So I want to tell you that I went to Heartland Pagan Festival and gave that talk that first year. And one of the things I talked about was Buddhist ethics. And one thing in Buddhist ethics, there's a a precept, which is a, a rule, and it's don't misuse sexuality. And when I mentioned that at Heartland Pagan Festival, people were really interested because pagans sometimes have different views of sexuality than other people might. Mm -hmm. And what I have to say is, I think that we innately know what is misusing sexuality. We know what we shouldn't do. And it's just that sometimes we do it anyway. So I think we're talking about betraying people. We're talking about, of course, doing really awful things that involve non-consent. We're talking about those things. We're talking about betraying people and being dishonest, but um, that's really it. I think we know what the lines are and we just choose to ignore those lines sometimes. Listening to your own guidance is important. Uh, when you're trying to decide, yeah, what defines misusing sexuality. A close friend of mine has been very sexually active for as long as I've known and, and always had a lot of fun with it and a lot of different partners. And more recently, she realized that she was misusing sexuality herself 
because she was so focused on those sexual connections that she wasn't building healthy emotional relationships and that she needed to step away from her active sex life and learn how to have healthy emotional relationships. I wouldn't say to someone that was very sexually active that they were misusing sexuality, but they might be for themselves. They have to be the ones who figure that out. And she had to be the one to figure out that she was using it wrong. Whereas other people who already had healthy emotional relationships um, that started having insane, awesome, crazy sexual relationships might be using it just fine. Everyone's happy. Everyone's consensual. Go out there and be as much of a slut as you want to be. I think there are definitely some Buddhists who would say, no, if you're not strictly monogamous, you're misusing sexuality. I'm just not one of those. I think I want to be monogamous, but I also, I don't, I don't, give a lot of worry to what other people are doing to make themselves happy. I just know Mm -hmm. I want to be monogamous. And if other people don't, I don't, I don't, I I hope they're all being honest with each other and they're being um, safe, happy and safe and everything's clear to everyone. And I, it may or may not be, but that that's where it begins and ends for me. I think it's up to us to know and, to make the right decisions that we can make to make to hurt people as little as possible. That's really mm-hmm. ultimately what we're talking about. And monogamous people hurt each other all the time too. But if you have a less traditional relationship, it's just hurt people as little as possible. And don't not only don't deceive other people with what you're doing, but don't let yourself let yourself lie to yourself. That feels like a really clunky sentence. Don't deceive yourself, but rather if you're hurting someone and you know you're doing it, don't try to convince yourself why it's okay. You have to take responsibility for it. You have to uh, own up to your own actions and the harm that you caused, even if you didn't mean to, you can at least admit that that did hurt you. Um, That's one of the really important points in one of our healthy masculinity classes that we had at the retreat was just about taking responsibility um, for your own actions and the effect that you can have on the world around you and the people around you. That is, and this really, this is not limited to sexuality, but really we could apply this to all sorts of things in life, right? Oh, certainly. um as far as masculinity goes, I just want to say that I think that, and not, not to make an excuse, but I think that people my age and older were sort of raised to think if a woman rejects you at first, you try to seduce her. And I think that we're learning in the modern world that maybe that's not okay. And it's a struggle for a lot of people to realize that. And it's it's when I reflect on my life, then I start to think, oh, I've probably done some things I shouldn't have done because our culture is really, it has come a long way in a very short time. And we're really starting to learn all these things that we need to know. And um. I'm, I'm just glad I think that the generations coming in the future are going to have a better grasp on consent and positive sexuality than than people my age and then people older than me, because I think that I had a lot of wrong ideas and I think that I'm not alone and it's hard to admit that. And I think a lot of people don't want to admit that, but 
that's what I see when I reflect on my life. I know, gosh, I saw movies when I was a kid that had rape jokes in them, like Animal House. And that is, that would not happen now. That is, that is crazy that I saw that as a kid. And I just think about how far our cultures come. And it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a hard thing to think about because things have changed so much for the better, for the better. Absolutely. For the better. Good change is still change though. It's still hard to work through good change. Um, and it's a wonderful thing that we're starting to fix a lot of these problems with ethics and consent and sexuality. And it's requires personal change from all of us, we've all been affected by these kind of Puritan roots and this cultural conditioning that was not actually okay. I have done my share of harm with partners um, and done things that I shouldn't have done and had to apologize and, and regretted my own behaviors as well. Um, you know, nobody's perfect, but what you can do is own up to it and be better in the future. Yeah, so <laughs> I think we're done here. We have, all right. we have solved all the problems. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I do want to thank you so much for letting me be here and talk about my organization and my events. If I can plug a couple things quickly, um, the website is templescarlet.info. That has all the information from the past couple of years. Our Facebook page. Temple Scarlet is updated more frequently. We will have things coming out in January and February is when we start our season and, and start talking. We'll be announcing who the, the leadership is for this year, the dates of the festival, that kind of thing. Um, before then, though, in December, I will be helping facilitate the Austin Tantra Festival uh, down in Austin, Texas. So anyone around that area has friends in that area holler at them. It's a cool weekend retreat in a mansion, a bunch of open-minded people. Um, it sounds fancy, but it's not overly priced for what it is. Uh, it's going to be really neat. I think there's going to be music and a bunch of different experts from all around that are coming in to teach Tantra and sensuality and sexuality. Uh, should be great. Did you ask for that opportunity or did they reach out to you? They found me. That is a great feeling, right? It is. It is. <laughs> it is. Um, yeah, there are not enough people openly out doing this kind of sacred sexuality work. I understand why. There's a lot of risk. There's a lot of pushback. It's a lot of hard work. Um, but there's not a lot of people doing it. And I think that's one of the reasons that I find it so satisfying. I'm providing something that the community needs. I'm really thrilled to be doing that. Okay. And just for the end, can you say anything to plug Aquarius? Always. Aquarius plugs itself, to be fair. Um, Aquarius KC is where I am employed. I do the promotions. That's basically the social media pages and the website. Uh, I organize the events there as well. So we've got events that happen in our upstairs, awesome, very peaceful event space just about every weekend. You can find it all on AquariusKC.com or on their Facebook page. Um, you can see some things on Instagram, though mostly we just po post product photos on there, not a lot about our events. And it is a huge, I mean, massive 
spiritual metaphysical store. It's a metaphysical store for conscious living. Any kind of spiritual path you're interested in, crystals, singing bowls, books, books, books. We have shelves and shelves and shelves of them. Um, you know, candles and essential oils and all of that. Whatever your path is, whatever you're interested in, we're there to help you figure out and find the tools that you need. Um, yeah, we do a pretty good job at it. We have a pretty great team. So, <laughs> I also want to say I think that Aquarius is the best place in Kansas City to buy malas. Uh, if you don't know what a mala is, it's meditation beats. Best place to buy those and the best place to buy Buddha statues. We have a huge assortment of malas made of different crystals. Yeah, they're really very gorgeous. You know, amethyst and lapidolite and um, lapis and, and that kind of thing. And they do. They are very beautiful. A lot of interesting Eastern artifacts even. Some of them are products. Some of them are artifacts. So worth looking into. All right. So thank you for coming. Um, thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you for having me. Yep. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.